you have found the Thinking Mind podcast. I think we all recognise that we have a tricky brain. One part of the brain knows that some of these ideas and problems are absurd and ridiculous. But of course, another part of the brain, the old brain, is very fearful and trying to keep us safe. And um, we can have those two parts of the brain working, you know, uh, with one another. But um, usually when the fear systems and structures of the old brain are activated, it usually dominates so that that's what takes over. And um, however much illogical and ridiculous you think it is, it's the fear system that, you know, drives your behavior. And as human beings, we're very good at reacting to things acutely in the short term. And our brains are really wired for that. But we're really bad at being aware of the effects of both positive habits and negative habits projected over time. One expression in this vein is that we overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in 10 years. We really don't have an appreciation for the effect of small consistent habits, both positive and negative over time as the, as the effects of those habits compound. And that's really a root of a lot of our suffering ultimately is this failure to keep in mind the long term. Well, and, and I think that's part of what happens in the world that we, we get stuck by old behaviors and we don't question them and we don't update them with new sciences, new technologies and, and, and new changes. Because once we do that, we can totally change. And, and I said, look, this is an amazing thing that, that I've realized that people don't question things. We just, you know, we're, we're born in life and we just you know, we, we, our parents are our first role models and we just tend to copy behaviours and we, there's so many things that we just accept without asking why. Uh, and, and one of the worst things that we, worst statements on the planet is, you know, when you said to someone, why do you do that? And they go, well, it's because we've always done that, yeah. you know, with no, no reason why and no definition to it. So anyway, I shared this with, with Eva and, and, you know, we've been on this journey together ever since. I think I was very naive. The, the year where I went in, it wasn't that big the year before. There's a couple. It wasn't that big. It really. I, I went on honestly. I was the only person went on there without an agent. But everyone was going, "Oh, Alex, how many followers do you have?" They'd say, "Oh, like fifty thousand. I got two hundred. Two hundred. They're like, "Oh, two hundred thousand. I was like, "No, I've got two hundred. Two hundred." They thought I, they were like, "Are you serious?" And I was like, "Yeah, I, I." And I was like, "No, I, I don't have that." So when it came out, it was an absolute shock. It was a real shock. It, it, fame, it, I don't know how young people, like, so bear in mind, I wasn't that young when I was 27 then, and I'm 31 now. I, I wasn't that young going on there. I'd, I'd, I'd done my, I'd sweated in A&E, you know, we're like you guys, we've done the work, we lived in the real world, we've seen bad stuff, we knew what stress was. But this was a different kind of stress, having your life, you know, coming out and seeing people slate you, there's people saying stuff on my skin. You know, I was on Rakuten at the time, and people are slating me for being red, which obviously went on that. It's very difficult. You know, I had people laying into me about my, my personality, saying oh, I was boring. I mean, there's all kinds of things that people write. And that's the first time I'd ever, you know, as medics, we don't go in the public eye. We don't, we're just not in that space. All of a sudden, you know, it was difficult. And, and that's why the biggest thing going back to saying it was very, very important. But things, you know, I, I'm a big believer that, what you put out there in the world is what, what eventually comes back to you. So if you put positive out there, you focus on things you care about, you'll attract an audience that care about it. You know, my following now is the vast majority of my following is 25 to 45. 
60, 70% of them. The other chunk is then under 25s and 18 year olds, et cetera, and, and maybe slightly younger. But the kind of Love Island audience who are not interested in mental health and health and well-being, the things I am, have kind of gone. I think there's quite, let's put it this way, I think there's quite a lot of people with long COVID who have got an illness which is pretty well indistinguishable from MECFS. Now, I, I was with, uh, I was at a research meeting yesterday with a physician who sees a lot of people with long COVID. And his comment was that he thought around about 25% of people he was seeing with long COVID had an illness which was basically indistinguishable from MECFS. When a patient does something that's provocative, interpersonally, intersubjectively, you can ask one, two, or three of the following questions. How would you like me to respond to that? That's more about id. Two, how are you afraid I might respond to that? That's more superego. Three, how do you imagine that I will respond to that? Which is more about the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex of the brain, but the executive functioning the of ego, the brain. Yeah, the ego. How do you imagine that I will respond? So the, so I'll give so you the, the id, the id is about desire. The superego yep. is about anxiety and what fear, fear, fear. Mm-hmm. and the uh, ego is about reality or reality yeah. anticipation. Yeah, 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 those are exactly the words. That's exactly right. So I get to the end of a session and we're at the door with a patient I've been seeing every week for a long time, each week, whatever. At the door, she says, oh, oh by the way, I think I'm going to take a break for a while. Now that I call a provocative enactment. So when they play out something um, and that you experience as sort of like it throws you off provocative, whatever. So I, in a moment, I panicked a little bit inside. And then I remembered my rule of three. And I said to her, how do you imagine I'm going to react to that? I figured I'd get a little supervision from her. How do you imagine I'm going to react to that, said I. She paused and said, oh, she'll probably say, we'll talk about it next time. And I said, yes, yes, we'll, we'll talk about it next time. She did come back next time. We did talk about it. She didn't take a break. So you had started smoking a lot of weed in Canada. Yeah. Spent a, a year there, came back. And then what happened next? Uh, well, I, went, I kept retreated into my shell like more and more. Um, if there were like social occasions, even if it's just mingling with other students, I want the ground to swallow me up. Uh, I was trying to trying to think where I should laugh, trying to think about being spontaneous. Well, yeah. and before long, I've, I would just let never leave my car, or I would like only only find sort of meaning whenever I got high. Yeah. Uh, because in the past there was good connotations with it. I had all this this popularity in, in Canada. But in England, that there was none of that. And uh, I became more and more paranoid. I thought people were talking about me all the time. No one would tell me the truth. As you said before, like, usually no one comes through what I did and talks about it. Mm-hmm. Or, or if, if, if they are, they'll soon relapse again, mm-hmm. you know. And, and, and uh, the, the further away I grow from, uh, you know, being back on the ward again, mm-hmm. the more I can sort of, like, do good things. If you have within your family a history of substance use disorders, you need to be aware you're at substantially greater risk than your friend whose family doesn't have that problem. So there's that genetic bit that's given. There are then events that occur during people's life that are 
traumatic or even just destabilizing, even without being major traumas, where there's a vulnerability to a chemical becoming part of the way you cope with it. And then finally, there's a pure environmental chance issue. If you happen uh, to be an adolescent uh, growing up in, let's take South London, over a, over a period of years when heroin use or crack use or glue sniffing or any of those behaviours was just rife amongst your school group, then just by virtue of being in that class in that year, you're a hazard. And so it's a mixture of those three factors. Those, those are part of what a society we need to bear in mind. And those of us who are clinicians or practitioners, we need to look at those to say, oh, so those are part of the picture of why someone's here today and why they're continued seeking for the drug and use of it has become so disproportionately mm. dominant. So what my, the theory that I, I work with is that what happens is those painful experiences get internalized as what's called toxic shame. I'm bad. I cause this. All children are narcissistic by nature. They're the center of their universe. They believe they cause everything good or bad. So it's very grandiose. Children, babies are grandiose. They either cause these things that, that, that hurt or I have the power to fix them and make them better. And again, all children internalize in the same way. So what happens for the nice guys internalizes this toxic shame. Not only am I bad because I cause mom to cry or I cause dad to be angry or my parents left or you know, whatever, we, we not only internalize I cause that, we also internalize a grandiose belief uh, if I can fix that, I can be better, I can be good to where that doesn't happen again. So basically what nice guys and nice girls do, like I said, I mainly work with men, but the paradigm applies to a lot of women as well. What they do is, first of all, they try to become what they think other people want them to be in order to be liked, loved, and get their needs met. And they try to hide anything about them, that toxic shame, that, that they think might get a negative reaction from people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so we become very guarded, non-transparent, hidden, often isolated. Don't let people know what our needs are, what our wants are, what our feelings are, what our thoughts are, what our desires are, because people might have a negative reaction. And we then try to, you know, kind of lick our finger, hold it up to the breeze and see which way, you know, the wind's blowing. Okay, now I, I become a chameleon and try to become what I think that other person wants me to be. I'll be kind. I'll be caring. I'll be giving. I'll be generous. I'll, I'll be different than other men. I'll you know, be different than dad, you know, whatever it might be. So going back to a question you asked earlier, what's wrong with being a nice guy? The most fundamental thing wrong with being a nice guy is you're, you're not honest. You're not authentic. Yes. There, there's not a you from yourself. Yeah. And, and, and you, and you don't let the world see who you are. You don't let you see who you are. And so, you know, the, and no more Mr. Nice guy that, you know, like the first chapter to the book, I actually talk about, I list all the things that tend to, to be a problem for, for nice guys, our dishonesty, our giving to get our, our you know, strings attached, our not being dependable, our passive aggressiveness, our resentment, all of these things tend to make quote, nice guys not so nice. And probably the most important question that I will ask today, 
Is it true that if you cough while smoking cannabis, you get more high? Did you get Did you get any findings on that? Well, you talk about coughing, Anya. Um, <laughs> it's uh, we haven't we haven't yet tested that crucial question um, scientifically, but we do know that CBD in the cannabis makes you cough way more so we had a, a third condition as val mentioned with thc and cbd in and people really struggle to get the cbd down there into their lungs and it, it causes a lot of aggravation um which you know can could potentially cause some kind of scientific limitations um about how successfully all of the cannabinoids have been absorbed and you know actually taken down into the lungs whether if you cough, you get more high. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that up to uh, the uh, uh, I don't know people who regularly use cannabis to, to to let us know. Would you say when you were going through the family therapy and the CBT that there was a still element of you that was in denial, or do you think by that point you knew that you were unwell? Um, I think denial changed to not feeling like I was worthy enough of recovery so with eating disorders they're highly competitive and that leads to the person feeling that they're not sick enough when they compare themselves to other people you know oh that person's been x amount of times to an inpatient hospital you know i'm not anorexic enough and you know it's really bizarre thinking and to the to my parents they just thought i was mad and you know you are sick enough but that definitely slowed down my recovery more because I just felt like I couldn't recover just yet because I validate my anorexia and stay ill longer. So the goal is to maintain a healthy, loving relationship that is mutually beneficial for both sides. I don't want just me to succeed and I don't just want you to succeed. I want us both to succeed because I actually care about you and I care about me too. So let's do this. How can we cooperate? Here is where I'm at. And they share their own context. Here is where I'm at. Here is why I'm invested in this problem. Here's why I'm a little emotional about it. But here's why it's, it's important to me. Mm -hmm. And here is what I hope to get out of it. You state your goals right on the surface. You're not playing games. You're not playing poker where you're keeping your cards to your chest. You play very clearly and say, here's what I want. Here's what I'd like to get. Here's my context of where I'm coming from. And then you pause and you give the other person the floor and say, what is your context? Where are you coming from? And what do you want to get out of this? And how can we work together to get both of those things met or as much of them as possible together? And the other person says, okay, here's where I'm at. Here's what I'm, here's why I'm doing this. Okay. Well, what can we do? And you guys just hash it out and say, okay, well, yeah, this is roughly even. This is roughly what we can do. And if it's not fully even, then what can we do in the second round? And the next time, that is more even. How can we go back and forth? It's not a full, perfect compromise. It's how can we balance our relationship so we both get what we need and we both feel fulfilled. And that's how you solve conflict, whether it's a disagreement with your partner or an, argue, or an argument with your kid or with your best friend or a business partner. That's how you handle it with secure attachment. Insecure attachment says, I got to play this close to the best. I can't trust anyone. I can't tell them what I want. I'm a burden. Anxious attachment style. I'm a burden. No one cares about me and no one's going to help me. And if I reveal too much, they'll realize I'm garbage. So they'll leave me. Avoidance style. If I'm too open with how where I'm coming from, they'll see that I'm weak and they'll sniff it out and they'll try to get more from me than they would. And they'll try to give me as little as possible. That's where the different attachment styles go into it saying, 
And it's impossible to cooperate under those circumstances because then it's a game. Then it's manipulation or then, it, you know, it's hiding things and keeping things secret or be martyring yourself to make the other person feel good so that they won't abandon you. It's all kinds of things go wrong. And that's like a secure attachment makes conflicts into valuable things because you you grow together and you respect each other and you build trust and you see that it works and you make it work as a team and then you like each other more and it grows the relationship through trust and respect. Conflict is good when you have secure attachment. Perfectionism can be conceived of as a defense. And what is it a defense against? Perfectionism can be thought of as a defense against realizing that we are flawed creatures, that we have limitations, that we cannot do everything, that there are restrictions within which we have to live our lives. For example, you need to sleep eight hours a night, you need to eat, you have a finite lifespan, you have talents, but every talent also has an underlying weakness, like you may be really good at drawing boundaries with people, but that might make it very difficult for you to empathize with other people. Or you may be open-minded, but that might mean that you have so many interests you find it hard to pick one for a long period of time. Or you may be very hardworking, but you may find it hard to relax. So whoever you are, you have these bounds within which you have to operate and you have strengths and, and weaknesses. For lots of different reasons, often relating to our early life experiences, a lot of people can suffer a lack of core self-esteem, which means they don't necessarily feel good enough as they are. And they feel that as a result, they have to make extra special efforts in order to be valued by the people around them. And while it's true that in any social system, one does want to have mutually beneficial relationships with the people around us, this process can go a bit too far in perfectionists where they construct an idealized version of what they could be and then endeavor to act that out as much as possible because they feel it's the only way that they can get validation from the world and the only way that they could possibly give validation to themselves. Not only that, it is a huge number of people who have lost lives. It is a huge number of adults, children who have perhaps had, like you described, traumatic experiences that have changed their lives. Yes, and now uh, every person who was in Ukraine in February has war experience and we all are in risk group for stress disorders. <laughs> and, that's, and that is something that we will see the effects of for years, potentially. So stress disorders is not just something that happens at the time, but we need to remember that no matter how long the war continues, the support needs to continue for for longer. Um, and we need to remember that people will need both social support and formal and medical support. Traditionally, you know, Patients with heroin dependence would, would have to, when they start on these medicines, have to go to a pharmacy on a daily basis to collect their medication and be observed taking it. The, the, the injectable version obviously removes that need or necessity to, to turn up every day. And we obviously know that people with heroin dependence have 
or can have the other difficulties in their life that might, lives, but might prevent them from doing those kind of things or you know prescriptions get lost people can't make it to the pharmacy timings happen you know life gets in the way and so having an injectable version for some individuals might be, might be much better i think it's really about increasing patient choice so being able to offer people the best evidence-based medications um, and other treatments that we can in addiction and so yeah expanding the sort of repertoire in terms of what we're able to provide is is always a good thing It's really useful to have a framework of understanding about personality because it it helps you understand yourself a lot better. You become more predictable to yourself and your problems can be seen in sharper relief. But similarly, you can also understand other people. And when you have a good understanding of personality, you can start to make predictions about how people are likely to respond to different situations. And it can provide a system of understanding for your own psychological growth and how potentially you could achieve this growth. So the dictionary definition of personality is it's a pattern of thinking, feeling and behaving in relation to yourself, to other people and to the world. So there's a wonderful patient journey written by a psychiatrist who had anorexia when she was 13 and she wrote her patient journey in the BMJ and how she synthesized her argument she said I can uh, use one word to describe my anorexia nervosa isolation so you know this being cut off from other people and and uh, being like that so i mean that was very much what lockdown did uh, and so the disconnection to the social network uh, you know is perhaps an important trigger or or something that, or a social net- network can protect people from what what goes on pre psychedelics Existential responsibility was an intellectual understanding. After my first psychedelic experience, existential responsibility became an emotional, and if you want to use the word spiritual, beyond cognitive processing and beyond thinking, but you know it's you because it's the core you. Psychedelics definitely put me in touch with that greater me that what Heinlein called the sense that grocks and it was in that experience that what I call existential responsibility went from being a cognitive process to a to a grocking or an emotional process namely the I had a, an immediate dramatic recognition that every person on the planet is connected that's what i mean by existential responsibility and with that came the immediate recognition that the planet itself is a living breathing organism and everything on it us plants trees rocks etc are all nothing more or nothing less than parts of this living breathing organism and that realization changed my life. You are listening to the Thinking Mind podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd love it if you share it with a friend or you could give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you fancy it, you can even buy us a coffee to support the team, and the links for that will be in the show notes.
Thanks for listening.